Amen. All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 on this kind of rainy morning. Um, we are going to finish off the chapter in chapter 8. If you're a guest with us, we are walking through the book of Acts uh, in a sermon series we are doing. Uh, we like to just kind of go through books of the Bible. And so we're in Acts, also called the longest sermon series ever. Uh, it's been almost a year, actually, because we took, we honestly took a big break, but this is part 14, and we're in chapter 8. There are 28 chapters in Acts, so we're buckled up for the long haul. Um, but we'll be at the end of chapter 8 today. And what is, I think, one of the more fascinating stories in Acts, if not in all of the scriptures. And so this week, this past week, uh, there was just absolutely this kind of this story just kind of took control of me, took hold of me, and, and was really haunting me. So I want to share with you and want to kind of unpack some things this morning from Acts chapter 8. We'll pick up verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback around you. You're more than welcome to use that and turn with us. Acts 8, I'll pick up in verse 26. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Read with me. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, you'll remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus comes to the apostles and says, Here's the mission. Y'all are going to be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, right where all this went down. And then increasingly throughout time, you will spread the message. You'll spread the gospel. You'll go to Judea and Samaria first, and then you'll go to the ends of the, the world. And we saw when Stephen was killed not too long ago, the, the uh, Christians scattered, and the gospel starts to be spread. And so last week, we saw Philip in Samaria. This week, we're seeing Philip now ministering to someone who would be considered from the ends of the world. Um, Ethiopian people, um, Jewish people would have regarded them, actually, they'd use those terms in the ancient world, from the end of the world, from Africa, from way over there, way far away from us. And so you get almost this taste here in Acts of how the gospel is proceeding, just like Jesus said it would, starting in Jerusalem, going out and going out and going out and going out. Now, this story in particular is very, very, very fascinating. First of all, you've got Philip, who was just in Samaria and had this kind of amazing reception to the gospel. You remember from last week, you had Simon, um, the magician in there. And an angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, I want you to go down on this road. I want you to go south. What's interesting is that this city that he's heading towards, Gaza, um, would have been destroyed about 100 years before Philip was told to go there. Um, and it wouldn't be rebuilt for about 30 years after 
this time period. Um, so here's what you should have in your mind here. Imagine you were at a company, okay? You were at kind of this startup company and you had this product and you're trying to get the word out. So what you want to do is you want to go to dense population areas where there's lots of people. You want to go to Town Square. Um, you want to go to New York. You want to go to all those places and, and get the word out. Now imagine your boss came to you and said, I've got an assignment for you. We're, we're spreading. We're getting the word out. I've got an assignment for you. There's a deserted city about three days away from civilization. I want you to go there and see who you can recruit. You would probably start thinking, maybe I'm not the MVP of this company, right? <laughs> maybe I'm not getting the all-star assignments here. Um, but the angel Lord says, Philip, I want you to go there. And Philip's like, well, okay. And so he, he goes there. On his way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this is fascinating. I don't know if you know what a eunuch is, okay? Uh, it's not a real delicate way to put this. <laughs> eunuch would have been a, a grown man who had been castrated and probably um, didn't have much remaining, okay, as, as far as being a man goes. Um, he was an Ethiopian eunuch, which meant he was a, a black African, okay, uh, and he was also a eunuch. Now, in Ethiopia, um, in the ancient world, this would have been modern-day Sudan, the king considered himself directly uh, a direct descendant from the sun god, from the god of, that they worshipped, which meant he was too holy to work. So the queen did all the work. Pretty nice myth, if you ask me. I would take advantage of it. Um, so he was too holy to work. The queen would do all the work. And so the queen would have to get kind of servants uh, to take care of her estates and to help run things with her. And uh, the only way a man could be admitted into the courts uh, to work with the queen, the only way the king would trust him is if he became a eunuch. So this Ethiopian eunuch, we're probably meant to believe, voluntarily, I know that's crazy to us, but voluntarily became a eunuch so that he, it was kind of a career move, so that he could go into the court, so that he could rise to power. That doesn't make sense to y'all? Y'all are, that, no? Some cultural difference there? Okay. Um, so that he could rise to power, get, get real high up uh, in the, the Ethiopian courts here. And so he's the, the secretary of uh, treasury here. He's in charge of all the fancies. So really important. Ethiopian eunuch. Now, when you become a eunuch, uh, hormones start to change in your body. So you become, you start looking a lot more like a female, okay? Uh, in fact, I mean, everything just starts kind of changing. In fact, most eunuchs will end up starting dressing like females. I mean, you kind of become almost in a sense a modified version of a female. Um, in fact, in the ancient world, and also today, actually, in India, eunuchs are considered a third gender. I mean, they're not one or the other. When you're, when you're hard to classify, you kind of get your own classification and pushed off to the side. You don't fit in anywhere else. So this is about as weird of a story as you can imagine, okay? Um, and its place here in the scriptures is a very weird place. Philip gets sent on this weird mission that doesn't make sense. And on his way, he meets a black man who's a eunuch. And that's weird. What's weirder is this eunuch had just come back from the temple in Jerusalem. So the Ethiopian eunuch wouldn't be a Jew. He'd be a Gentile. Um, but for whatever reason, he'd probably be considered God-fearer. He saw the Jewish religion as interesting to him, as making sense of his worldview, the big questions that we ask, the story of a creator God who created all things and made a covenant with his people. Um, and so he goes to the temple to worship, to kind of maybe find some answers. And as he goes, he probably finds out that Jewish people considered eunuchs cursed and cut off from God, that they were not allowed to enter into the community. One of the most shocking things about this passage is that Philip will end up baptizing him, which is a direct contradiction of Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, which is eunuchs will not be allowed into the community of God. Jewish people considered them unnatural. 
you have not followed God's plan for a male. Part of being a man is being able to co-create with God in his image. You've cut that off. Also, it was kind of a, a, a lifestyle that was associated with immorality, right? Not only did you do that, you did it why? So you go chase, go chase money in the court, go chase power. Deuteronomy 23.1, they're, they're not allowed. They're not in. So this is a man who's doubly rejected, okay? He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, which means he can only get so far in the temple to worship. And then he's a eunuch. Two strikes, right? He's not allowed in. So you have to wonder if he's leaving Jerusalem maybe with a little bit of, of shame, maybe with a little bit of disappointment, a little bit of alienation, a little bit of feeling excluded, particularly if he was going to Jerusalem to find what he was looking for, right? To find the answers to his questions, to be able to worship the one true God of the universe. He goes and he's told, I'm sorry, you're not a part of what God is doing. You are the kind of person that's not on the inside of this. And he's leaving. He happens to get an Isaiah scroll. Again, an indication that he's a very wealthy, very powerful man. These scrolls were not cheap. Not a lot of people had them. Usually a whole community could barely afford to have a little scroll like this. And the eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. Philip kind of runs up and jogs up next to the chariot. These two questions here in verse 30 and 31 are haunting questions, I think. Um, Philip comes up and he says this. Do you understand what you are reading? Let that kind of ring in your head. And, and then the Ethiopian, watch his answer here. How can I unless someone guides me? And then we get the passage that he's reading from. It's Isaiah 53, a very interesting passage about a servant who would come and who would suffer on behalf of God's people and who would somehow make atonement doing that and would start fulfilling all of God's promises. Now, here's what's really interesting about the eunuch reading from Isaiah 53. If you have your Bible, go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 53 is part, um, comes on the heels of a long passage about God's kingdom coming in Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 53, you get this kind of cryptic passage about a suffering servant. It's interesting because the question the Ethiopian asks, who's he talking about, is a question modern day scholars still ask about Isaiah 53. Who's he talking about? What's happening here? And from very early on, the Christians have gone, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who did come suffer on our behalf. But Isaiah 53 has this kind of servant. It's almost like a job description. This is what we're looking for. We're looking for this servant who's going to come lead through suffering. Isaiah 54 talks about a new covenant. That after this figure comes, there'll be a new promise God makes for this people. A new age. Isaiah 55 talks about a new creation. After the servant comes, they'll make a new promise. Then there'll be new things happening on the earth. And then in Isaiah 56, which you've got to imagine is in the eunuch's mind here. He's reading this little chunk. Look what you read, verse 1. Isaiah 56, verse 1. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Okay, pay attention. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Interesting to say to a person who is physically incapable of having descendants. You have to imagine the eunuch is going, where is this? Where's Isaiah 56? 
Where's the part where I get in the community? Where's the part where I get to experience salvation, where I get a better name than a son or a daughter? And he, he probably worked his way back down the trail and came up with this suffering servant figure who seems to be the key to all of this happening. And so Philip walks up and he starts a conversation and the Ethiopian goes, who is this? If I, if I can ask you a question, who is he talking about here? Is he talking about himself? Because if so, I mean, this didn't happen. Or is he talking about someone else? And Philip goes, well, let me, let me tell you about this one who came and suffered on our behalf, who did inaugurate a new covenant, who did start this work of new creation, who right now is entering and offering entrance into the kingdom for people who were once far off. And so this Ethiopian, they happen to find water. Lots of coincidences here in the story. They're in a desert. They find water. And he goes, hey, there's some water. Would anything stop me from being baptized? You should probably read emotion into that question. You should probably read him expecting a negative answer to that question. What is there to stop me from being baptized? If he was at the temple, they would have a list of things, right? Well, where do we start, buddy? (laughs) Philip says, hmm, stop the chariot. And they get out, and they go in the water, and they come out. Philip's kind of taken away mysteriously. The Ethiopian goes back home rejoicing, converted, a believer. In fact, the church um, in Ethiopia uh, to this day, largely indigenous church, traces back their faith to this eunuch, traditionally. So crazy story. One of the strangest things you could imagine to happen here in the book of Acts. A middle-aged Jew and an Ethiopian eunuch. These are boundaries. And they've just been completely demolished by the gospel, by God's love, by what he's doing. Very, 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 very interesting. I mean, it's this kind of, it's this, it's this picture of what's happening with the gospel, what's happening with the cross, that those who were once far off, those who were once alienated, who were once not allowed in, are now being pursued by the God of creation. That he's now running after them and saying, I want you. I died for you. I suffered for you. Come experience life and salvation with me. If we were going to list out the boundaries that the gospel crosses with this man, it would be a pretty impressive list. Racial. A Jew and a black man. Boundary crossed. Cultural. Ethnic. It's from Ethiopia. From Jerusalem. Religious. He's a Gentile, a God-fearer. Philip's a Jew, converted Jew. Physical slash sexual, we might say. In the first, I mean, you should imagine kind of an effeminate voice, okay? You should imagine someone who most of the world would feel uncomfortable around. This is someone the Jews had deemed completely off limits, an abomination to God. And Philip's sitting in a chariot with him and then a minute later baptizing him. Dare we say, and I've got to be careful here, But dare we say that a scriptural boundary was crossed here? You've got to do something with the fact that there's an explicit command in Deuteronomy 23 that this was not to happen. And then you have Philip, who believes the scriptures, including the Old Testament, coming along and doing it. A long-established tradition with scripture behind it, completely overturned. As God's covenant gets wider and bigger and his love gets deeper and stronger and people who were once on the outside are now invited in to experience 
God's love, to experience salvation. We have to realize God's allowed to do that, right? Uh, you, you might use the analogy of if you have a kid and you tell them when they're young not to do a certain thing. And then when they get older, you give them different instructions, right? Because they're wiser, they're older, they have more freedom, they're stronger, they're bigger, whatever. And, and they go, oh, that's not what you told me way back when. And you're like, okay, well, I'm telling you now, right? That was for then, this is for now. In this stage of the plan, this stage of your life, this is how we're approaching things now. And there have always been this hint, these hints, right? And you have it again in Isaiah, that one day the eunuchs would be allowed in and would be able to receive salvation. So you have here a picture of God's radical, extreme inclusiveness and his love of the gospel going out and finding people who for all intents and purposes are completely on the outside, have no shot of getting in. But they believe, they ask to be baptized, and they're in. Now, uh, for the astute reader, you'll see in Acts 8, there's no verse 37. Anyone catch that? It skips from verse 36 to 38. If you look at the, if you have the ESV, um, if you look at the bottom, there should be a note. And it has 37 at the bottom there. Uh, Verse 37, and Philip said, this is after he asked, can I get baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The reason that's not in the actual text of our Bible and down at the bottom is a footnote, is that our earliest manuscripts of near, closer to the time that Acts were written don't have that verse. Uh, Only a couple hundred years later do we start seeing that verse. So most people think someone along the way probably put that verse in. Maybe a long shot, it was always in, but from what we can tell, it was put in later. Now, the verse is not bad. It's not wrong or anything like that. So they include it in here. But um, you have this picture, right, of not even a confession is required from the Ethiopian. All that's required from him is the desire to be baptized. And Philip says, let's get in the water. Let's baptize you. Just this really, really interesting story. This really, I think, powerful picture of, of how God pursues. All of us operate with an image of God that affects the way we view and relate to him. Okay? And, and a lot of times our relationship with God, when it goes off track, can be traced back to a false image of God that we had. Um, so, for instance, perhaps you had a childhood bully who, who just bullied you ruthlessly and he was waiting for you to do one small, tiny little thing just jump on top of you and make your life miserable. And, and perhaps you've carried that into how you view God. For the most part, he, he's fine with you and he leaves you alone, but, but he's kind of waiting because he knows eventually you'll do something stupid and it's go time. Or, or someone who had a, a drunk father who never said I love you, never said I was proud of you. And we, we get the feeling that we'll never please God. I mean, he'll never really be happy that we're his. Or maybe distant parents who were never there. They are always gone. And, and, and that's how we end up viewing God. He's, he's just, he doesn't really care. He doesn't mingle. He doesn't interact. He's far away. And, and you see, I mean, that, that will influence how we pray, how we worship, how we relate, how we obey. These kind of false images of God come in and distort things. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is the first thing you think of when you think of God. That emotional picture that you have. The gut reaction, that, that picture, that feeling, that moment that you go to when someone says, God. Because that will influence a whole lot about your life. Which is why the scriptures say very clearly, hey, we saw what he looked like. 
We have an image, a perfect image, the exact radiance of his character, actually. He walked with us, he talked with us, he ate with us, he laughed with us, he yelled at us a couple, bit, a couple times, <laughs> he died for us. We know what God looked like. And so we are, according to the scripture, reframe our image of God around who Jesus is, around his love, around the fact that Jesus very rarely met someone who seemed to scare him. Very rarely met someone whose past was so ugly that he wanted to stay away from them. Jesus, who, who never really seemed to see a boundary that he thought was important. Who never really cared what other people thought as he was eating and laughing and pursuing other people. Who kind of got frustrated with religious people when they tried to erect boundaries. And tried to keep him from pursuing certain people. I think some of us have this feeling that God is a little bit angry at us. Or that if he's not angry, he's at least waiting to be angry. He's kind of this mean father. He's kind of, maybe in a sense, disgusted with some of the stuff we do. But, but according to the scriptures, God is neither frightened by nor afraid of your skeletons, <clears throat> by your past, by the things that you think that no one else knows about. By the moments in your life when you thought you would never be there. By the things about you that you, you can't change. Here's the interesting thing about the, the eunuch. Is, it's something you can't really repent of, right? I mean, that's a permanent decision that he made. God can't be like, I'm sorry. Um, you can reverse the eunuch stuff and then I'll accept you. No, God just says, you're in. You believe, you want to follow, you're thirsty. Here's water. Here's a baptism. Here's a name that's better than a son within a daughter. I wonder if, if we have truly experienced that kind of love. The love that would make John in 1 John go, Behold, see, look at how crazy, ridiculous this love is. That the God of the universe, the God who sent his son, who's working through his spirit, looks at you and me and goes, My son, my daughter. Do you remember the, the verse in Hebrews where Jesus says, Those who are faithful, who follow me, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. Which has always just been weird to me. I'm ashamed sometimes to own myself, right? Jesus says, those who, who follow him, he stands up and says, that's mine. There's no, there's no shame there. And, and someone else goes, oh, but you don't know about them. He goes, no, I know. <laughs> you don't know about what they did. You don't know about what they thought. You don't know about where they've been. You don't know about who they are. And he goes, they're, they're mine. Better than a son. Better than a daughter. They're included. They're loved. This kind of radical, inclusive love that pursues us. And then I would also think, you've got two pendulums, okay? Two, two sides of the pendulum. On one side, you have people who erect these boundaries and say there are certain people whom God does not love, who he does not go after, who are not um, an option to enter into the community. And, and they kind of withhold their love because there's certain people they don't love, right? And in fact, some people on this camp think they're a part of that. God can't love me because of certain things. And then on the other side of the pendulum, it swings the entire way, and you have people who want to radically increase God's love for everybody to the point where there's no moral sense of right or wrong and ethical, prophetic voice from the scriptures and from God. So everything's okay all the time. God loves you exactly how you are, and nothing will ever change about it, and that's okay. Um, and I always want to come back to this phrase here, um, which is, it's okay to not be okay. I mean, that's something we try to build into the foundation here at the church. It's okay to have problems. 
It's okay to have big problems. It's okay to be confused and angry and scared and have more doubts than you can count. It's okay. It's okay to be broken. But there's an important second part to that phrase. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. God, his love for us is so relentless, so powerful, that he never leaves us in our self-destructive habits. Does that make sense? He comes and he meets us right where we are. I mean, unconditional. Not those who are worthy, not those who meet certain requirements. But he comes and he says, you're in. But then he loves us too much to just leave us there in those kind of self-destructive habits. He says, now walk with me to life. Walk with me to wholeness. Walk with me to salvation. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay there forever. That would be, that would be an excuse. So you have this picture of, I mean, just real radical love. I wonder how many of us can maybe relate to the Ethiopian. Or how many of us maybe have erected boundaries and thought God's love can't reach these people. I mean, you'd be aware that right now is the most segregated hour in America. Honestly, 100%. Not even, I mean, not even a doubt, not even a question. Nothing comes close to it. When we're worshiping. One of my prayers for the the past few years is our church would look like Kroger in the middle of the day if you just took a snapshot, right? That's our community. That's where we are. Rich white people don't have all the answers. We need everyone. We need diversity. We need to be together. We need to be a sign to the world that the boundaries of humanity have not been broken. That we're one renewed family. The hostility that once stood between us has been deconstructed by the cross. What boundaries maybe have we built up? And then I think also, as we're going through the book of Acts, we're we're trying to pay particular attention to how the church is witnessing and possibly what cues we can take from that. As we try to be faithful in our little community here in Sugarland, as you try to be faithful in your families and, and your friendships, how you can witness to the cross, how you can witness to the gospel, how you can um, fulfill your part in God's mission. And I think there are some interesting cues to take here. Notice how much in this story is guided by divine intervention, is, is prodded by God and through the Spirit. Um, and at the beginning, an angel of the Lord tells Philip to go where he's going. Okay, so Philip goes. Um, while he's there, he happens again to see the Ethiopian. Lots of coincidences, coincidences there. Um, the Spirit tells him when he sees the Ethiopian, go over and talk to this guy. After they talk and he's baptized, the Spirit takes Philip away. You remember at the beginning of Acts, we talked about how important the Holy Spirit was to Luke. How he probably can't imagine a world without the Holy Spirit. Imagine a cross without the Holy Spirit. Imagine Jesus without the Holy Spirit. And so occasionally I'll try to, I'll try to take a story in Acts and take the Spirit out of it and see how it reads. And this word doesn't make sense at all. I mean, the Spirit is at every corner, particularly when he's about to do something cool. Particularly when he's about to do something big and magnificent and powerful and awesome. And so the Spirit prompts Philip. Um, to, to be faithful witnesses, I think we have to be attentive to the Spirit. Um, notice what Philip is doing here. All he's doing is noticing what God is doing in joining him. <clears throat> Philip is not creating anything out of the air. So, so Philip, again, gets instructions to go where he goes. And then he happens to find an Ethiopian. And he doesn't walk up to the Ethiopian and go, Have you ever heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or Jesus is Messiah who's come and died for our sins, raised again for our life. Let me tell you about him and hand him a tract uh, and kind of cold call him. 
right? He walks up and he finds a guy who's already gone to the temple because he's so interested in all of this. Who's reading from Isaiah 53 as he's riding along in the chariot. And Philip says, I'm not a genius, but I think God's doing something here. So, so maybe I can join in. Maybe I can help here. I, I had a, a friend from Arizona uh, who, just the most genuine guy in the world, and he, he was telling me a couple years back about how he was part of, with his church, this evangelism program where every Friday, Saturday night, they would go to the local movie theater uh, and hand out tracts and witness to people and things of that nature. Um, again, the most genuine guy I know, uh, loves Jesus, uh, very smart guy, I mean, just real all-star, rock solid. Um, and he was telling me about the, they, they've been doing that for about six months and they haven't seen kind of any results. I mean, you can imagine if someone went to AMC 24, right, on Friday, Saturday and did that. You can imagine the kind of, just the looks they would get and just the, I mean, I personally would be like, oh, I'm here to watch the movie, okay? Uh, and, and I had this, I mean, I, this kind of tension within me, this kind of wondering if, that, if that's really the best way to go about it. I mean, that's really the best way to witness and to evangelize. Now, here's what he would say. He would say, okay, fair criticism, but people who say that typically just say that because they never do anything, right? That's just a smokescreen to never talking to anybody about Jesus. At least we're out there doing something, which I would say, good point, right? Good for you. At least you're doing something, right? Um, but I think that the, the picture in the scriptures is, is that through our relationships, through conversations, through not creating things, but simply watching where God's already working and then joining in, that's where the most fruit is found. The people in our lives, the people that we live with, the people that we work with. Where is God moving? Who's asking questions? Whose heart is being formed and shaped and prepared? I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about our job as Christians. We don't have to make this up. We don't have to like beg the Holy Spirit to come work. He's working all around us right now. You said that the harvest is plentiful. Who's going to go out there and reap it? I've been pursuing people. I've been preparing hearts. I'm looking for people who will come up next to someone and go, do you understand what this means? Which I think would be a great question for us to adopt. He comes up beside Philip and goes, do you understand what this text means? And not just for scripture, but, but maybe for life. I wonder what our community would look like if we adopted this question and would would start conversations like this with people we know and, and that we love. Hey, what do you think that movie meant? What do you think that song meant? Did you understand what just happened there in that relationship? Did you understand what just happened in that scene we just saw play out for us right there? If we started interpreting life and pointing it toward the cross, pointing it toward the spirit. So I was at Camp Blessing um, a couple weeks ago, uh, special needs camp. And while I was there, there was a guy in our cabin, Josh, who's a good friend of mine, uh, he is maybe 20 years old, um, and he is just a, an all-star. He's an awesome guy. And we had lots of good conversations, lots of these kind of questions. Like, what does this mean? What, what, do we understand really what's happening in front of us as we're um, taking care of and watching these kids? And Josh had a kid named Matt, okay? And Matt was maybe like 11 or 12 years old. He had severe autism. Um, he had very limited speech. Uh, and Matt had OCD, pretty severe OCD, and was just the most worried kid that you'll have ever met. Um, I mean, he never had a look on his face that wasn't worry. I mean, he was just a very uptight, strung out kind of kid. Um, real cool kid. I mean, awesome, but just very, very worried. And so he had this kind of compulsion to make sure the door in the cabin was closed, just the way he wanted it to be closed, which is not conducive to having another the cabin full of other small boys with other special needs who don't care about his particular 
preferences for the door being closed. Um, so, I mean, he just constantly, every three seconds, get up and close, close the door the way he wanted to. Just kind of looked real worried. Um, and one day, uh, Josh, myself, and another counselor, and our three uh, campers, were in the cabin hanging out. They weren't really interested in whatever the camp was doing that night. Um, and so we were just chilling. And Matthew went into the bathroom to go to the bathroom. And he went to the bathroom, flushed the toilet, came out. Now, as he came out, the water did not stop going in the toilet. And so it kept going, kept going, started overflowing, and, and really kind of exploded on us. And we ended up with like two inches of water in the cabin. Uh, and Matthew starts freaking out. I mean, bless his heart. He's, he's not one for attention. He's not one for tantrums. So he's like crying, and you can tell he's like trying to hold it in. There are just tears coming out his face. And he looks more worried than usual. Um, and it, I mean, it just breaks your heart to see this. And, and we're doing everything about Matthew. This is, no one's mad at you. This is not your fault. This would have happened to anybody. It was just the next person going in there. Don't worry about it. All your stuff's off the floor. Everything's good to go. And he's just crying and pacing and really upset. So we go out of the, the cabin, uh, maybe 30 yards away, and, and they're cleaning up in there and fixing everything. And Matthew, again, I mean, he's just, he can't take the eyes off the cabin. He looks so worried. Tears, again, just kind of squeezing out of his eyes. This is the most heartbreaking thing you've ever seen. And you gotta, you gotta know, he's probably thinking about that door in there. Like they don't know how to treat that door. <laughs> Need to get in there. And so, so we were like, what if we go? What if we go a long way away? I mean, what if we go away? So you can't see the cabin. Maybe you'll forget about it. Maybe you'll calm down a little bit. So we end up going to this this fireplace, um, a ways away. And 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 Matthew kind of calms down a little bit. He's still, I mean, it's just real worried kid. Um, you do the best that you can to, to kind of take care of him. And, and so we're talking. To, I'm talking to Josh, and we're kind of asking this question, like, what does that mean? And, and I'm like, what? I mean, it's interesting, because we can't cure Matthew. We can only care for him. There's a big difference between the two. We can't cure this problem either. Like, we can't fix this problem, which is kind of a a male uh, deficiency, right? Like, we're not big empathizers. You come to us with a problem, we're not going to be like, oh, yeah, that really does stink. We're going to get a whiteboard, get three steps, and then you're done with it, right? Now let's have a good time. And you're like, no, I just want to talk. I just want to listen. Well, you can't fix that problem, right? We tried. Matthew, it's not your fault. No one's upset at you. Everything's okay. Everything's perfectly fine. But he's still worried. Can't fix the problem. All we can do is be there for him. And that's really all we can do. In the end, that might be the best thing we could do. And, and, and we're wondering, what, I mean, what would the church look like if we stopped necessarily trying to fix each other's problems and just started being there with each other? Hopefully you know, right, I mean, if someone's dying in the hospital and, and your friend's in the hospital, you don't walk into the room with 12 steps for them to feel better, right? Don't worry. 10 steps, you're going to feel like a champ. <laughs> you, you walk in and you, you sit down next to them and you take their hand and, and you, you're quiet. You don't say anything. You can't fix that problem. You can just be there. And then, I mean, how often in our lives is one of the reasons we get frustrated with God because he's not fixing our problems. Because maybe instead he's offering himself, right? Instead of the fixed problems. We're like, no, 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 that's not what we're interested in. I want you to fix this so I can do things the way I want to. When the promise of scripture has never been that I'll do what you want me to do, that I'll be enough no matter what happens to you. Josh was one of those guys in my life who we could ask that question. Hey, do we understand what's happening here? Do we understand this text? Do we understand the situation? What's this teaching us? How's this pointing us to Christ? How's the Spirit moving in this? I think we would do good to adopt questions like that. So this morning as we we think about the Ethiopian eunuch, um, as we think about him coming to faith, I, I want us to be confronted with the extreme love that God shows 
um, that while we were enemies, at that time period, while we were enemies, before we'd cleaned up, before we had done anything worthy, before we had done anything, God came to us and said, I died for you, I love you. And we said, well, I'm, I'm planning on doing this. He said, no, 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 I love you. And we said, well, there is this, but I can explain it. He goes, no, 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 I love you. Not a future version of you. Not you in four years when you finally figured out that problem. Not you in two weeks when you've conquered that habit. Not you in 30 years when you've finally grown up. I love you. Right now. Yeah, yeah, there's problems. We'll, we'll work on that. We'll get out of that. But that doesn't exclude you right now. Come to me. I mean, you're never going to get out of the problems if you run away from me. You realize that's just a, a, a circle of despair, right? I messed up, so I run away from God and then get more messed up. And I feel like I can't go to God, so I run farther away from God. And, and, and I mean, it's just the cycle that's never going to end. The only way to get out of our problems is to run to him with them. And to know based on the scriptures, that he's not waiting for us with a hammer or with the I told you so speech. He's waiting there with his arms out like the prodigal father. He's waiting there like Philip who gets in a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch. How weird is that? And the eunuch goes, can I get baptized? Philip goes, yeah, there's water here. And he, he goes back and, and starts one of the largest churches in the world. So, so could we be confronted with that love and then could we be faithful to our, our job to, to spread that, to share that, to be conduits of that love? That in our community, maybe, maybe us as a church, as a corporate community, we would be one loud question to the, the world around us, Sugarland, the greater Houston area, which is, do you understand this? Do you understand what's happening as the Spirit is moving through people, as He's working and He's preparing hearts? That, that you would be able to see the people in your life, your family members, your friends, your coworkers, the people that you go to school with, the people that you play with, the people that you talk to, the people that you run into, that you would be able to, to see where God is moving and that you'd be able to join him in that. I think sometimes we, we paint evangelism or witness as this kind of intimidating white knuckle thing. Like it's really uncomfortable, but you just got to kind of do it if you want to be on the team. When in fact, it's, it's more like an adventure. It's more fun. It's more, hey, that's crazy. I, sorry, I overheard you talking about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd like to talk to you about that. Or hey, I, I know that's really going rough in your life. How can, I, how can I pray for you here? Can I tell you about what God has done for me in the past? Can I tell you about what I think he might be doing in your life right here? And perhaps we'd see, we'd see Ethiopians converted. We'd see churches started. Um, and we'd see God's glory further and further expressed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your, your grace in our lives. We thank you for your uh, love that, that reaches across all boundaries, um, that relentlessly pursues us, um, that, that sent your son. Out of love, we're told, you sent your son. Not out of anger, out of, out of your love, you sent your son to die for us, to rise again for our, our lives. Your Son, as He ascends, sends His Spirit to, to fill us, to guide us, to, to walk with us. And we pray, Father, that this morning those things would become further reality in our lives, that um, we would understand the text, we'd understand your suffering, we'd understand the servant that you sent us, and that we would also be like Philip, and, and that we would go out in faith, attentive to your Spirit, and share. 
and we ask that you would help us do these things. We know we're, we're, we're very powerless on our own, so we ask for your spirit, for your power, for your courage. It's in your son's beautiful name that all God's people once again said, Amen.